that you may know. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are know, love, and believe. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in your seat back, it is on page 1021. Now, it may seem like a simple question to answer, but I assure you that if you asked a group of people, what is a Christian, you will get quite a variety of answers. In fact, I would say that because there is so much confusion about that question, I've spent a lot of time over the past uh, 10 years talking to people only to realize that many who profess to be Christians have never actually sought to answer that question. It's something that has become an assumed knowledge and is often tied to an activity like going to church or, or being baptized or having, uh, having a way uh, sort of, of, of describing a Christian's lives by, um, uh, by attitudes or actions and the things someone does. And that's a, that's a very wide spectrum that people fall on in terms of them trying to describe what a Christian is. For example, I, I read an article uh, this week, and here are some of the highlights of what this, uh, this young lady wrote. She said, since I came into my spiritual identity, I have identified as a progressive Christian. I have always been fascinated by Jesus, his message, by his mission, and I have dedicated my life to it, whatever form that may take, but I have never been completely comfortable as a progressive Christian. Yes, the term helps somewhat to alleviate the sense people sometimes get that I'm some kind of crazy, Bible-thumping evangelical trying to convert them. A progressive Christian, most of them ask, they've never heard of it. But this question is the source of my discomfort, the catalyst for the battle raging inside of me. What is God? I've decided it is finally time to stop fighting this battle and accept myself for what I am. I'm an atheist, a Christian atheist. I still believe in God. What I do not accept is belief in a theistic deity, a being that created the universe, holds the universe together, or exists in or apart from the universe, God is not a being, but being itself. The world, the universe, is all that there is for us. Through Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, we experience transcendental being, spiritual alertness, and the power of ultimate love. This is why Jesus' worldly message of distributive economic and social justice is so important. The living God, not the theistic God of the past, connects and surrounds us all. And as long as some among us live in poverty and destitution and oppression, we fall short of God's glory or our ultimate potential. To put it shortly, the social gospel is spiritual. And I'm sure I will still traffic with progressive Christians and support it in emergence in the world of American Christianity. It is the next step toward a new theology, a new approach to the spiritual, and hopefully a truly just and egalitarian world, a world where everybody has enough, a world free from the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, a world where reason, science, and progress lead to the betterment of all humankind, the kind of world Jesus wanted. Is this so-called person a Christian atheist? A Christian? She would say she is. She just said that she is. What about another group? They say this. We accept as Christian any individual or group who devoutly, thoughtfully, seriously, and prayerfully believe themselves to be attempting to follow the teachings of Yeshua of Nazareth, also known as Jesus Christ, as they interpret those teachings to be. Is this what it means to be a Christian? Attempting to follow Jesus as we individually interpret his teachings to be? 
What about groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses? They will tell you unequivocally. I just looked it up on their website this week to make sure. They state emphatically that they are Christians. The Jehovah's Witnesses say on their website, we try to follow closely the teachings and behaviors of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the key to salvation. When people become Jehovah's Witnesses, they are baptized in the name of Jesus. We offer our prayers in Jesus' name. We believe that Jesus is the head or the one appointed to have authority over every man. We believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, not part of a trinity. We do not believe that the soul is immortal. We do not believe that there is any basis in Scripture for saying that God tortures people in an everlasting hell or that those who take the lead in religious activities should have titles that elevate them above others. Is that consistent with the definition of Christianity? It's no wonder that over 70% of people in America and the adult population claim to be Christians because it seems as though the prevailing idea is that if we want to call something Christian, it simply is. There's a lot of confusion about the question. If only we had somewhere to find an answer. And this morning we are finalizing our series on Christian assurance. How can we be sure that we are in Christ? And, and I want us to answer that question this morning. What is a Christian and how do I know if I am one? And we're going to do that by doing something uh, I rarely do, but we're going to look at an entire book of the Bible. We're going to look through 1 John. And uh, we won't read every verse in the book, but we're going to look at key themes and passages uh, throughout 1 John And in doing so, I hope we have a better sense of what the Bible says, what God says about what a Christian truly is. There are many definitions, there are many ideas, but what has God said in His Word? Because that's all that matters. And specifically, we're looking at 1 John because throughout the book, John writes, this is how we know. He tells us. This is how we know whether or not we're children of God. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know whether or not we are children of God as Christians. John concludes this letter with an affirmation that our assurance, our knowing what a Christian is and whether or not we are one is at the heart of why he wrote this letter in the first place. Chapter 5 and verse 13, he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to have assurance. So we have to look at what he says throughout the letter, that we would believe in the name of the Son of God, that we may know that we have eternal life. And I want us to use the specific language of John as he gives us these tests. We're going to look at some tests of genuine faith. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. He writes, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what we want. That's what we are after. So the question that John frames that we need to ask is, do you walk in the light? And he's going to answer that by laying out, contrary to the things I've said, others have proposed in terms of what Christianity is, but actually laying out a framework that says this is Christianity over there and that over there is not. 
In other words, despite what many people say and claim about what they think Christianity basically is, however they want to define it, there is actually a very straightforward way to see whether or not we are Christians and whether or not what we are believing in is actually Christianity according to God's definition of it. And as it pertains to our assurance, the question for each person is, am I walking in the light? So we're going to take some tests this morning to help us answer. So keep your Bibles open, keep ready. We're going to look at a lot of texts throughout 1 John, and we'll be flipping back and forth. Now, the first test we are going to look at is the test of faith. What do you believe about Jesus? Now, when I meet a person for the first time, I very quickly want to get to this conversation with them. What do you believe about Jesus? Or what do you believe at all? What is your understanding about life, about, about God, about the world, and how it all works together? I'll often ask someone, uh, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And just want to hear what they have to say. Now, the Bible as a whole, and especially 1 John, presents us with the reality that what we have faith in matters, and it has consequences. So the first way we want to look at and see how John answers this question as to whether or not we are walking in the light is, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, fully God and fully man who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and three days later was raised from the dead to rule and reign from heaven forever and ever. Now, of course, John is not writing outside of a historical context. He's very much responding to something that was going on in the church. And in this case, he was dealing with a false teaching that he had already been seeing in his day. False teaching was circulating. And so, and so John is responding to that by identifying what it is and then connecting those he's writing to with the truth. Remember, we said he's looking at these big themes throughout the book, and he says, that's what's right, this is what's wrong. And so he deals first with the false teachings about Jesus. Let's look at a few places where he does that. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says, Children, in, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's the key. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now look over at chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. He says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And verse 10 of chapter 5, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Okay, so the lie that John is addressing uh, is the lie that was going around the church and it was spread by false teachers and it was that Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh, but he was only God appearing as man. In other words, his flesh wasn't real 
human flesh. His, his nature was in no way a real human nature. Maybe like angelic or something along those lines. But they could not reconcile the spiritual and the divine with the physical. Because in their minds, everything physical was associated with evil and everything that was spiritual was associated with good. And they, the two could not coexist. It was an ancient heresy. And so John is responding right out of the gate, and he does this if you look back at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. John begins, that which was from the beginning, okay, so here he's dealing with Jesus' divinity, saying he's God, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There's his humanity, his flesh and his blood. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice something he's doing here. He deals with the divinity, he, devil, he re deals with the humanity, and then he makes this an issue of fellowship. From the very beginning, he says, again, he says, we proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. In other words, if you want to number yourself among the Christians, among those who are legitimately in the church as sons and daughters of God, you must believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Otherwise, you have no fellowship with the church. Later, John addresses this there again in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Very simple. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then chapter 4 and verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So John is masterfully addressing both the human and divine natures of Christ. One man, two natures, fully God, fully man. How does he do it? I don't know. But that is the reality. It's what we call theologically the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in Christ. And if you do not embrace this, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. I didn't say that you have to understand it or be able to explain all of it, but if you deny it, if you reject this, John is telling us you have no fellowship with the church. That's one of the fundamental basic realities of what it means to be a follower of Christ, walking in the light, to believe that Jesus was and is a man, was and is God. And just to be abundantly clear, John emphasizes a summary of this truth in chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So here's the first test. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who was He? Who is He? 
And if you ask that question today, you're going to get many different answers, just like we, we see in the Bible. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? He got several different answers. He got, he got responses that would be not very different from what we hear today. If you ask, who's Jesus? He was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a prophet. He was, he was God-like. He, he was an enlightened man. But John tells us very clearly Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And to be a Christian, you have to believe that. Your doctrine of Christ is essential because Jesus Christ is the central figure of our faith. You can't miss the mark on this one. Jesus wasn't an appearance of God without true flesh. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just an enlightened man. He was a human man. He got hungry. He got tired. He got sick. His flesh was wounded. His blood was drawn. He died a death, but he was also and is also God. And one of the reasons it's so important to get this is because our very salvation hangs on this issue. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, then who died on the cross and why? What's the point? What does it accomplish? Without his flesh, there is no sacrifice and there is no blood and there is no one to look to to redeem us from our sins because the death that he died is useless. Because we needed one like us to die for us in our place to take on what we deserve. And likewise, if Jesus isn't God, then the worth of his death and the sacrifice that was made is useless because apart from being God, Jesus would never be able to fulfill the entirety of the law of God in his life and being able to take on, as John writes in chapter 2 and verse 2, the sins of the whole world. So let me say it this way because this is what John is saying. If you do not know and affirm and believe and confess who Jesus truly is, you are not a Christian. No matter what you say, if this is not what you believe, you are no more a Christian because you say you are than I am a jar of peanut butter because I say I am. Jesus Christ is God who, before the foundations of the earth, covenanted with the Father to live a human life, perfectly fulfilling the law to die a sinner's death. And he did that. And as to the law, he did everything perfectly. Never an evil thought, never an evil deed, never an evil intention. He died in the place of sinners on a cross, taking the penalty reserved for us and being raised from the dead. Now listen, if you don't believe that, you can, you can say whatever you want to say. And if you don't believe this, or if you have some other idea about Jesus, it's not Christian. And I, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll consider what I'm saying and ask more questions and dig deeper because this is an unmovable, absolute reality of the Christian faith. And if you do believe this is true in its entirety, you can have reasonable assurance of your salvation because non-believers don't believe this. <laughs> faith in Christ as He is and who He is is essential to saving faith. And so affirming this great truth, John shows us, is one way we can have assurance. What do you believe about Jesus? That's a question we all need to test ourselves on and a question we ask others when they tell us they're Christians. Second test is a test of obedience. How are you living your life? 
Now, I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks laboring the point that our standing before God as justified sinners, as a people who are forgiven of sin by grace, through faith alone, is in no way by our works whatsoever, but by the work of God and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, credited to our account solely by the grace of God who gives a gift of faith that we might believe in Christ and repent of our sin. That needs to ring in our ears. That's the gospel. We need to keep that front and center. We need to remember that. We need to stand on that. And we cannot waver from that truth. We cannot, we will not earn anything before God by our works in terms of our standing with Him. You are either in Adam as an unjustified sinner or you are standing in Christ as a justified sinner. And once you are standing in Christ, you cannot be taken away. You cannot lose that standing, nor is there any greater standing to earn or to achieve. It is all a work of God by the grace of God to the glory of God. Now, having said that, we have to recognize also that the Bible is full of imperative commands that as Christians we are obligated to fulfill. Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John reemphasizes this point in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 of 1 John. Look there, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6 he writes, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So you see, the question of how you are living your life is crucial. It's a test. It's evidence as to whether or not God has truly done a work of transformation in your life. Now, here's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. The non-Christian hears the law of God and says, that's restrictive. That's unfair, that's too rigid, that's, that's ridiculous, that's archaic, that's unrealistic. The Christian hears the law of God and says, I love that God has given me a standard to look to so that I know how I might live my life to the most fruitful, joy-filled, God-glorifying way. I know that what He commands is for my good, and as a result of that, uh, my obedience is far greater than what I can achieve in my own finite wisdom and finite understanding. I want to do what God calls me to do because I know it's for His glory and for my good. So the non-Christian will rebel and, and kick against God's law. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of every person apart from the transforming work of God in Christ. But a Christian says, Jesus said, if I love Him, I will do what he commands. And I do love him, and I do desire to honor him through my obedience because I know it's not only for his glory, but it's also for my good. And, and not only then is there a love for the law, but there is now the power of the Holy Spirit within us by utilizing all of the means of grace that we can have the ability to do what God calls us to do without the obligation to sin that we once had. So you see, our, our works don't get us to heaven beyond the grave. Our works don't give us our standing before God. 
Our works are the natural overflow of a life with God where the works are consistent with the Word of God. Does that mean you won't sin? No. No, not at all. John answers that as well in 1 John. Christians will sin. But John shows us there's a very stark reality, a very stark contrast between when a person who is living or walking in the light, when they sin, versus when a person who is in darkness sins. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then if you look back at the end of chapter 1, he makes very clear that you will never live life perfectly on this earth. You will sin. You are a sinner. And even though your desire may be to honor God, your desire is to walk in the light, you will still sin. John writes, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, if we say we have no sin, <laughs> we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So you see, verses 8 and 10 are the acknowledgments that we will and do, in fact, often sin. And to say otherwise is a lie, and to say otherwise is to call God a liar. But thanks be to God as he's told us that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that when we confess our sins because of Christ, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, perhaps it may be helpful for us to think about raising our own children. Now, even if you don't have children, hopefully you had parents who loved you and took care of you, and you can understand what I'm getting at here. If not, I hope you can at least know something of this through experiences with, with others. Listen, I love my children unconditionally. Without fail, no matter what they do, that love for them remains in me and it's not going away. Were it necessary, I would lay down my life for them in an instant without hesitation. That's not changing. And that's only a small fraction of the love that God has for His children because he sees us in the light of Christ. He sees us as his children standing in Christ. But, but that love I have for my children does not diminish the fact that I demand obedience out of them as well. They have an obligation to God to obey me as their father. And for their good, I expect them to do what they are asked with a heart and a desire to do so because they ought to know that I am asking them to do what's best for them, what serves others, what contributes to the good of the family. And in that way, God has given us His law that we might walk in obedience for our good to serve others and to contribute to the family, to the body of Christ. And John is reminding us that when we understand this as Christians, it will be evidenced in our lives. And when it's not evidenced in our lives, we cannot have the assurance we're looking for of being in the faith. If you're in Christ, God loves you unconditionally. But if you're in the faith, that, God, that love of God is a motivator in us to walk in obedience because we want to please Him. We want to honor Him. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. 
through 10, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he, as he, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very straightforwardly, what John is saying is children of God will live lives that reflect that they are children of God. They will practice righteousness. Now it's really important here that we put all the pieces together because test one about faith and test two about obedience are not separate from one another. What I mean is a person can articulate all of the best doctrine in the world in the most magnificent, biblically faithful way possible, but if their life in no way is reflective of one who actually obeys that doctrine, they don't actually believe it. Likewise, a person can be sweet and nice and kind and seemingly loving and caring and generous and whatever else you, you desire a person to be, but if they do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is, they can't be a Christian. So you see, you, you can't have right belief without obedience and you can't have obedience without right belief. They, they don't work separate from one another. They're inseparably tied to one another. This is, in more theological language, if you will, the relationship between the law and the gospel. They both matter together. They're tied up together and they can't be taken apart. And as a, a children of God, you will see the effects of both of them playing themselves out in, in your life. You say you believe in Jesus, but you live with a love for the world. John says, well, you, you don't have works identifying you as a Christian. Or you do all of these good works, but you don't think Jesus is the Son of God? John says you don't have belief identifying you as a Christian. If you are truly a Christian, your life will be filled with a true recognition of who you were and what you believed before you were in Christ and who you are and what you believe now that you are in Christ. Walking in the light as a child of God. The hymn writer, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, which we sang earlier, he once wrote this, he said... I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Those are the words of a fully assured, obedient Christian with faith in one Lord, Jesus Christ. If you, friend, are hearing this and are very aware that you are not a Christian based on these two tests, May God be pleased to continue to, to open your eyes to this reality that you may see and that you might have faith in Christ and repent of your sins, that you would walk in the light and not continue in darkness. Well, lastly, our third test is the test of love. What is your relationship with the people of God? What do you think about God's church? Look at chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
Now notice, John doesn't make this a sort of optional or nice ending to the whole thing. It's not a maybe, it's not a would be nice, it's not a hopefully one day, but it is a necessary it is a necessary thing. He says, if you love God, you will also love your brother in Christ. Not just the ones that you have the same personality as, not the one with the same interests, not the one who doesn't have bad breath. Your brother in Christ, you will love them. And I mean, this should make sense to us, right? Imagine, imagine if the church was like your family reunions. Now, be real. Everyone has the same names, but there are all kinds of secrets and problems and terrible pasts that, that weren't resolved because there's a lot of people who don't love one another. Look, the church would be awful. I wouldn't want anything to do with that. That would be awful. And some churches, I will say quite frankly, are awful because they profess right doctrine. And they are very sure that their lives are being lived in obedience to the commands of God, but they have no love for one another. So you see, love for the church, love for the bride of Christ, love for the people of God is the third leg to the stool, and without it, the stool will not stand. He tells us in chapter 4 and verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I want you to notice how he wrote that. If we love one another. It's conditional, right? If we love one another, God abides in us. It's an evidence. If you've been saved, if you're a Christian, if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, if you're walking in obedience, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love one another, God abides in us. Are you walking in the light? How can you know? One way you know is your relationship toward the people of God. And in this, we have assurance. John actually addresses this issue of Christian assurance by this very test. Look again in chapter 3 and verse 14. He writes very clearly, unequivocally, he says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Am I a Christian? Well, it will show in a love for the body of Christ. And this isn't just having uh, warm, fuzzy feelings about people. This isn't just about saying, yeah, I, I love them, I care about them. We're talking here in the way the Bible talks about what love is, primarily as a verb, primarily as an action. Love is something we do more than it is uh, being something that we think or feel. John goes on in, in chapter 3 and verse 16 to explain this. He writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you say you love your brother, and your brother has a legitimate need, and you have the means to meet that need, but you don't, your talk is cheap. You don't love him. Otherwise, it would show. And if it does show, that need will be met. You are showing love. It's visible, it's real, it's tangible, and it comes at the expense of the giver. You know, one of the most shocking things to the world about the early church was that nobody in the church had a need. Every need they had was met. And it scared the authorities because they thought the church was going to rise up and everyone was going to want to be a part of that because they saw that. Does the church reflect that today? Does your heart reflect that today? Are you a Christian? Can you have assurance of your faith? Do you know that you are in Christ? Three important tests to give yourself. What do you believe about Jesus? 
Do you have faith in him, trusting him that he is who he says he is and has accomplished what he set out to accomplish for you? Do you have a desire and do you give your life to obeying the commands of God? Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command. You can't do it perfectly. You won't do it perfectly. But what is the desire of your heart? And what are you doing in your life to stay focused on walking in the light of Christ? And do you love the brothers and sisters of Christ? What do you think about the church? What do you think about God's people? Let me ask you this. Are you more interested in finding your friendship among worldly people because you think they have more fun? They're more easygoing? They want to do the things you want to do and your brothers and sisters in Christ are all sort of boorish and lifeless. John summarizes all of this in the final chapter, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He writes this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He talked about love. He talked about obedience. He talked about faith. Is the world more attractive to you? Beware. Beware. John ends with a warning in verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, very simply, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from the idols of false Christs propagated by antichrists. Keep yourself from the idols of the world that call you away from obedience and wrap you up into the things of the world. Keep yourself from idols that make the people of God seem boring and uninteresting and unlovable to you. And as you do these things, as you walk in these great truths and these promises in Christ, you will walk in the light and you will have the true assurance that you are in Christ and that He is in you, and that you have hope beyond hope in the life to come. God has given us in His Word all that we need to know about what a Christian is. And if we want assurance, we need to ask ourselves these questions, that we might rest in them and build all of our lives upon them, and that we may not have to walk in fear as to whether or not He knows us. What do you have faith in? Are you walking obediently? Do you love the church of Christ? Have hope. Have assurance. You are in Him. Let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> thank You so much again for Your Word. Thank You for Your love for us, Your kindness toward us, the hope that is ours because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And we pray, God, that as we have heard Your Word this morning, that we have much more clarity in answering that question. What is a Christian? Who are truly your children? And I pray, God, for all in here who truly are Christians, that you would give us an even greater assurance of that truth, that we would rest in you, we would find all of our hope and stay in Christ alone, that we would not waver from that assurance, but that you would give us all that we need, that we continue to walk faithfully in the light. For those who are not in Christ, I pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would save sinners, that you give them new life in Jesus, that they would find hope beyond hope that no doubt their restless hearts are seeking for and can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. 
May you do that, God, for your glory, for the building up of your church. The gates of hell shall never prevail against. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.